everyone, and welcome to the Foodist Podcast. I'm Daria Rose. Today, I'm talking to one of my favorite scientists, Dr. Rhonda Patrick. Rhonda has a PhD in biomedical science from the University of Tennessee Health Science Center and St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. She also has a Bachelor's of Science degree in biochemistry slash chemistry from the University of California, San Diego. She's done extensive research on aging, cancer, and nutrition. Rhonda also trained as a postdoc at the Children's Hospital Oakland Research Institute with Dr. Bruce Ames in one of the most respected labs in aging and nutrition research. She's also done research on aging at the prestigious Salk Institute for Biological Sciences, where she investigated the role of insulin signaling in protein misfolding, which is commonly found in neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's disease. On her website and podcast, both called Found My Fitness, she discusses topics including the role of micronutrient deficiencies in diseases of aging, how genetics determine the effects of nutrients on a person's health status, the benefits of exposing the body to hormetic stressors such as exercise, fasting, sauna use, or various full forms of cold exposure, and the importance of mindfulness, stress reduction, and sleep on health. Today, I talked to Rhonda about a recent paper she published where she proposes a mechanism by which fish consumption, but not fish oil supplements, can help protect against Alzheimer's disease and those genetically predisposed to it. We also talk about how she helped me get pregnant um, twice (laughs) and how we both approached nutrition and health during our pregnancies, as well as her own personal approaches to health and nutrition and much, much more. I learned a ton during this episode, and I'm sure you will too. Here is Dr. Rhonda Patrick. Rhonda, welcome to the show. Thanks, Daria. Happy to be here. I mean, it's, it's been a while since we've seen each other. It has. Yeah, it's been at least a couple of years. Yeah, I think the most notable thing that happened since then is we both had babies. We did, yeah. <laughs> uh, how's Luke? He's doing really good. He's so I mean, cute. How just, old is he now? He's uh, just, he'll be 15 months tomorrow. Crazy. I know. Time flies. And he <laughs> is, I mean, just like something new every day, you know, new, new yeah. words. Um, he's sounding out alphabet letters. Oh, wow. It, it's, yeah, it's really just like, it, it's so, it's amazing to see how, how quickly these, you know, children they go from like being completely helpless to being able to like say, H, hi, you know, <laughs> in like 15 <laughs> months. I'm like, how does that happen? Yeah, it's so crazy. Um, my daughter, Zelda, is turning one today. And in my brain, she's still like six months old. I'm like, how is this even possible? Well, I guess, you know, humans really do have to adapt quickly if you're going to make it, you know, pre-industrialized, <laughs> I mean, right, world. Right. I don't know. It's it, it it definitely like seems to to happen pretty quickly and I'm trying to savor every moment. Yeah, yeah, same. So, I don't know. I'm not sure. Some people must know this because I, I did write a blog post about it a while ago, but you actually helped me get pregnant. That's super cool. Uh you you just you just made my <laughs> cheeks flush a little. <laughs> yeah, cuz um, you know, we had been trying for over a year and I remember you had been trying as well and then you got pregnant and Kevin was talking to you. Kevin's my husband and you guys, you guys were chatting about it and you were like, yeah, just give up, gave up coffee and boom. Right. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> she did what? <laughs> and so I, you know, he mentioned some of the studies and, and I'll have you uh, explain some of those in a second, but um, I went on PubMed and also started looking at all the studies and I was just 
shocked that nobody had said anything. I was about to go through fertility treatment. Like, I was like, you know, we were sort of going down that path because I mean, whatever, we didn't, we weren't trying super hard, but it'd been a year and we were, you know, timing ovulations and, and doing all the things. And that was something about like me too, (laughs) within a, within definitely within a month. And, you know, I, I, I think the year mark is when I had gone to see the doctor. It, was, it hadn't been quite a year. And they said, well, it hasn't been a year. So we're not going to really talk about any other options yet. Let's just you know wait and see. Of course, nothing else was mentioned about caffeine. And so I just started digging in the literature. And I, you know, I started with like, you know, macronutrients, vitamins, mineral. Like I just was going everywhere to kind of try to like give myself the best, you know, chance. And I came across some some studies about caffeine consumption and like really early miscarriage, like super early like implantation stage early. And I was, that was it. I was like, well, I love coffee, but you know, that's the one thing that I really haven't tried. And so I just full stop cut out caffeine, you know, no tea, nothing. And um, within a month I got pregnant. That's crazy. So I didn't cut full stop. I I couldn't bring myself to do it, but I I tapered down uh, over the course of a week. I went from like coffee to matcha to sencha <laughs> to oolong, which are progressively less <laughs> caffeinated. And I actually stuck with oolong. I, I was drinking oolong. Uh, I can't have two cups a day, but I was having one cup a day and I was still able to get pregnant. And uh, shortly after this happened, I told my best friend who'd been trying for, I think, close to two years. And within a month, she got pregnant. Wow. I, I actually told another friend of mine who was doing um, IVF because uh, there was also evidence for caffeine affecting that and um, that that she, of course, got pregnant. <laughs> well, not, I shouldn't say of course. I mean, it's still, you know, it's still anecdotal, but yeah. <laughs> but it's still, I think it's very interesting. It's still hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the studies that I came across when I was reading was that it, actually it also applies to decaf coffee. Oh, really? Yeah. I was pretty surprised by that. I know that high doses of caffeine were definitely on the list of things to be careful of, but they they there was one study, I think I linked to it in the blog post I wrote, that showed that even with decaf there was still an issue. So I was um that was one of the reasons I switched completely to tea um and didn't give it up completely. Had it not worked in the first month, I probably would have dropped <laughs> caffeine completely, but it did. So Interesting. I wonder if there's some, you know, some of the polyphenols in in coffee or something. Yeah, super, super crazy. You know, what's funny too is you actually helped me get pregnant a second time as well. What? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, so Kevin, as you know, is a big fan of your show and you talk all the time about saunas and he was, I mean, he saunas like almost every single day. And he was pretty convinced that that was a viable form of birth control. (laughs) And so we're, um, you know, I actually, I started drinking coffee again and then, and it was, you know, when I first had the baby, it was totally fine because I was so tired. I didn't have any trouble sleeping at night, but once she started skipping nighttime feedings and sleeping through the night a bit, then actually a cup of, I became so sensitive to caffeine that a cup of coffee, if once I would wake up in the middle of the night for a feeding, I wouldn't be able to fall back asleep. And I noticed if I didn't have coffee, that didn't happen. So I stopped drinking coffee. So I wasn't on having coffee, but Kevin swore <laughs> that if he was doing the sauna every day, we were fine. Here I am. Oh my goodness. Six months pregnant again. I guess he had sort of made that association because it affects sperm motility. Yes. 
I mean, I, I certainly haven't seen any evidence that it like causes ster- sterility or anything that bad. I mean, but but he, I guess he was saying, well, maybe because it affects motility, they're not swimming as good. And yeah, it's one of the studies shows that like it's like three to six months before the yeah. recover from yeah. high heat treatment. So he was like, oh, we're good. We had so much trouble last time. Don't you worry. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> we should make you the godmother for one of our children or something. <laughs> but now but now you have, you know, both of them. Is it, you know, the gender of the, the second? It's another girl. Yeah. It's another girl. <laughs> Congratulations. <Thank you. laughs> yeah, it's so funny. So you think you're going to you're done with two or you're possibly going to we're probably done. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of yeah. fun, but it's I'm definitely like a lot of work. Like five in a car, five at dinner, five, you know, I'm just five on an airplane. I'm like, that just starts to sound harder. Um, I feel like yeah. two is a good number. Uh, I mean, we'll see. It's hard to say never, but it also seems hard to give your full attention. You know, the more you have, it kind of gets spread thinner and thinner. Yeah. I also really um, hate being pregnant. <laughs> so i'm like i'm like halfway through now and i'm like oh god when is this gonna end (laughs) yeah so hopefully we're done um but you never know but i was i wanted to ask you so we have that in common we have our new babies um we actually have a lot in common we have both studied aging extensively um i don't know if you know that i i used to i did my undergrad uh honors thesis on uh, aging. I didn't know that. fMRI studies. Yeah, I studied dementia. Oh wow. I knew I knew you were like neuroscience background. Yeah. But I think that was postdoc that I had only sort of looked yeah, at. Yeah, and, and in grad school I like did development. So it was like totally different. But um yeah, so I've always been interested in aging. And I actually just found out from listening to one of your shows that one of the other things we have in common is that we're both APOE4 carriers. Oh, you're APOE4 carrier. One allele? Yeah, I have one allele. I'm 3-4. And you, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today is because you just published an amazing paper on APOE4 carriers and a potential mechanism to help with the issues involved. Um, but I'm sure a lot of people don't know what APOE4 is. <laughs> so since you're the expert, would you mind explaining sort of what APOE4 is and why why it matters. Yeah. It. Why it matters. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, APOE, APOE is a is a gene and, you know, people have different versions of genes for a variety of reasons. There's, you know, a lot of scientists think that various mutations have arisen in the population because uh, it offers a selective advantage for some reason. Although oftentimes uh, a mutation that offers a selection advantage also can come at a disadvantage. So there's always sort of a trade-off between what the mutation may, you know, lead to. So APOE is a very, probably one of the most common genes that has a, a variety of different what are now not just mutations, a mutation is something that kind of occurs randomly. But when you start to get more than or greater than 1% of the population coming up with that mutation, it's actually called a polymorphism, or in such case, a single nucleotide polymorphism, a SNP. Um, because you, you start to, it's not random, you start to have like, you know, a sizable percentage of the population getting this quote unquote mutation. So um, with the APOE, uh, gene. There's four different isoforms, really three that I would say are m- most common. And um, they're referred to as one, two, three, and four. And and most of the time you'll find two, three, and four. Three is kind of the benchmark. Most people have, have the version APOE3, but about 25% of the population has either, you know, has at least one allele of the four, APOE4, which you and I fall into that 
That's a big number. It is. That's what I'm saying. So I said I said over 1% is considered a polymorphism. Yeah. 25%, you're talking a huge part of the population. So it's really relevant to understand, you know, what the difference between the version of APOE4 versus, you know, APOE3, what the differences are. And really from like a selection advantage, it's really interesting because the APOE4 allele has been shown to protect against things like malaria. Oh, really? In one sense, yeah. <laughs> you can imagine. It's like sickle cell anemia. That's pretty, yeah, that seems like a pretty important reason why biology or nature in a sense would, would want to keep it around. Um, wow. You know, but, but there are some trade-offs and those trade-offs are that uh, much later in life, there's an increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. And uh, also, it's associated with an increased risk for cardiovascular disease. And that's because um, APOE is made in the liver, and it's also made in the brain. So there's actually two separate pools of the APOE proteins that are made from the, from the gene. And in the liver, what, what the APOE protein does is it plays a really important role in transporting cholesterol and fatty acids and things like that. So it's a lipoprotein. And it can be found in you know, LDL and uh, HDL lipoproteins. And I read in your paper, it's associated with higher serum H- plasma HDL, or plasma HDL. Yes. Or, sorry. Yeah. Plasma um, and that's because yes, essentially to kind of just simplify things, the lipo, the APOE4 version of it, lipoproteins get recycled. So, so they're made in the liver, they, they get transported in the bloodstream and they do all this cool stuff like transport cholesterol to cells that need it because every cell in your body is made of cholesterol. They transport fatty acids uh, because your cells need fatty acids for a variety of reasons, including energy. Once it does that, it goes back to the liver and it's recycled. So it's like this recycling process that happens. So that you, for every, every, you know, every given time, you only have a certain amount of the cholesterol, you know, being, being circulating in the circulation basically. But the APOE4 version of this um, protein doesn't recycle very well back into the liver. And so what ends up happening is that people have higher circulating levels of cholesterol because the, that recycling process isn't working quite as efficiently as people with the APOE3 version. Hmm. I, I actually have really low cholesterol. How about you? Um, I did at one time have a pretty high LDL. Hmm. And that was because I was I was cooking with coconut oil, which is um, really high yeah. in saturated fat. And saturated fat is one of the major dietary factors that does have a significant impact on LDL cholesterol. Mm-hmm. I cut that out, and my cholesterol just like dropped by I mean, a significant number. But you know, there's other there's other things that regulate cholesterol, other genes that are also mm-hmm. really important for cholesterol. It's not the only one. So it's yeah. not like the end. Yeah, my HDL is really high, but my LDL is super low. That's weird. My HDL is actually like significantly higher than my LDL. Isn't that weird? Yeah. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, APOE4. Yeah, that's, so that was the liver I was talking about. In the brain, it's yeah. a completely separate pool. So the APOE4 made in the liver and, and in, the, in the circulation doesn't actually cross the blood-brain barrier. You actually make APOE in cells in your brain called astrocytes, which are supporting cells for neurons. And APOE in the brain serves a very similar role as, in, as it does in the periphery. Uh, it's also transporting cholesterol and fatty acids and things like that to neurons. So it's kind of like astrocytes are these little livers. <laughs> little brain livers. Like you can think about it like that, sort of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where they're like making stuff that your neurons need. So um, that's, that's essentially a very simplified version of what, you know, it, it does in the brain. But um, as I mentioned that people with the APOE4 allele have an increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. Well, if you have one allele like you and I have, individuals with uh, one allele can have anywhere between two to three fold higher risk for Alzheimer's disease. 
which is a lot, which but a people lot. with two alleles can have up to a 15-fold, 10 to 15-fold, which is Oof. really a lot. Yeah. And when I say increased risk for Alzheimer's disease, I mean late onset, what's called sporadic Alzheimer's disease, which is, it's considered non-genetic. So there are other mutations in genes, in um, certain genes like presenilin, for example, genes that are involved in the production of uh, cleavage products of amyloid beta protein that are associated with a really early onset for Alzheimer's disease, like late 50s, early 60s. So late onset is usually, you know, right. you're talking about maybe early 80s or late 70s. People with the ApoE4 version can actually get it a little bit earlier, but it's still um, considered late onset. So um, I found out I had one of these, one of these, you know, ApoE4 isoforms um, and also, my great-grandmother had Alzheimer's disease, and it was very, very painful to watch her, you know, essentially die from this disease because she went from, you know, a pretty smart person to eventually, you know, forgetting things like every five minutes she would ask a, a similar question and like where she didn't know where she was. And then eventually she just didn't recognize anyone, you know, in the family. And it was really hard to watch. Yeah, it's one of the saddest things. I had a similar experience. Uh, I actually don't have anybody that I know of blood related to me with Alzheimer's disease, but a cousin by marriage, her grandmother had it. And I, I watched her just scream at her son because she thought a stranger was in her house, like trying to hurt her. And I, it was just heartbreaking. I was just a little kid. And that's one of the reasons I got into aging research. Cause I just thought what a tragedy, you know, to ha- live your whole life and then not have your family. Like the one thing you want to have around at the end of life is your family and to not, even recognize that as a thing is just such a such a horrible fate to me. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. You know, there's one of the last moments I remember with my great grandmother. I often get teary eyed when I when I t- tell this, but you know, like she she would always tell me I always had really long hair, and she would always say to me. I mean, throughout my life, just starting as a young girl, she would say, "You've got beautiful hair. I bet your father loves your long hair." And she would say that to me, just you know, for my whole life, basically. And um, the last time I saw her, she, of course, didn't recognize me or, you know, any, anyone else in the family. But uh, I sat I sat next to her on the bed and I'm, you know, trying to like help her eat. And she said that to me about my hair and I just broke down crying, you know, because I was like, there's, she's in there. She's in there. You know, she doesn't recognize Aww. me, but she's saying the same thing to me that she would always say. Right. So it's, it, it's, it's definitely, so it's, it's definitely a really hard disease for the family, Aww. you know, particularly for the family. But um, that kind of w- that's kind of what instigated me to, to dive into this literature because yeah. um, even though ApoE4 does increase Alzheimer's disease risk, not everyone with an ApoE4 allele gets Alzheimer's disease. There's a very, very important gene-diet-lifestyle interaction. Right. So, um, so I was like, I was determined to figure out, well, what can I do in my you know, life, my diet, my lifestyle to really lower my risk? And I would say one of the most important things I found was sleep. Sleep is really, really important, particularly for ApoE4 carriers. And that is because Mm -hmm. there are two main ways the body can clear amyloid beta plaques from the brain, which are associated with Alzheimer's disease. Not necessarily. It's a very complicated topic. But people with ApoE4, there's two main ways. The first way is actually ApoE-mediated. ApoE in the brain binds to amyloid plaque and re- and basically through this whole receptor uptake thing, it gets rid of it. The other way is through 
the glymphatic system, which is basically this hmm. series of, you know, vessels that extends from um, from the spine up and through the brain. And it's, you know, it, it's activated during sleep, actually during deep sleep in particular, and cerebral spinal fluid squirts throughout the brain and literally cleans out all the cellular debris hmm. from like dead cells, amyloid plaques, and other things. Yeah. Human biology is so amazing. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> it is. It's, you know, it never ceases to amaze me or surprise me. Um, but the the thing with ApoE4 is that people with the ApoE4 the first thing I described, you know, it clearing out the amyloid plaques. Well, ApoE4 binds to amyloid beta plaque 20-fold less efficiently than ApoE3. So people with ApoE4 become very, very dependent on sleep and the glymphatic system in particular to clear away amyloid plaque. And that's been shown through a variety of mechanistic studies in animals that have been given human ApoE4 um, to sort of humanize them. And it's also been shown in a variety of observational studies looking at people with ApoE4 that get quality sleep and you know a duration of at least eight hours sleep a night, and they actually have the same risk as ApoE3 carriers. That's really cool. Yes. So that sleep was one of the main things that I really um, wanted to optimize for. But that's not actually what my publication was about. Right. Um, <laughs> my publication was about something that wasn't as clear as uh, the fact that sleep was very important for, uh, particularly for ApoE4 carriers, but for everyone in general. What my paper was about was how the omega-3 fatty acid DHA is transported into the brain uh, differently in ApoE4 carriers. Mm -hmm. And that stems from a variety of um, research studies that have been done over the years that have looked at, for example, again, humanizing mouse with ApoE4 um, and, and radio labeling, you know, DHA and seeing how it gets into the brain. And it seems to, you know, get into the brain much less uh, efficiently than the brains of animals with human ApoE3. Um, and that was DHA that was, you know, like in supplemental form given, given to mice. Right. So for people who don't know what DHA is, it's, it's basically fish oil, like a fish oil supplement, right? DHA is one of the omega-3 fatty acids. Um, there's three of them. And I'm, I'm kind of, docosa hexaenoic acid is, is what the They're not name fun is. to say. Yeah. I like, <laughs> I like DHA much better. <laughs> But um, it's, it's DHA is one of the, the really important ones because um, about 30% of the lipids in the brain are made of DHA. It plays a really important structural role in uh, neurons and a lot of receptors that are in the neurons and transporters. Um, so it, it's, it's really important for getting stuff in and out of neurons. It, it just it plays a really in, a essential role in um, normal neuronal biology. It's really important for taking glucose up into, into the brain. Um, in fact, there's been studies where uh, mice that are, that are made to be um, very low in, in DHA, um, glucose doesn't get taken up into to the brains as well. Um, and that's because DHA is essential for re regulating the structure and function of glucose transporters um, at the blood-brain barrier, in particular GLUT1. And your brain needs glucose, everyone. Your brain needs glucose. That's one of the low glucose is one of the you know defining characteristics actually of um, Alzheimer's disease as well. It's also really important for preventing something called tau tangles. Um, that's also been shown um, as well. It's been shown in clinical studies uh, to to reduce uh, tau tangle pathology, and there's been all these mechanistic studies showing why. Um, and also, it's been shown to reduce amyloid plaque. So DHA is really important. You want to get it into your brain. So the fact that ApoE4 seems to somehow impair the transport of it was really concerning to me. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also been human studies looking at um, humans given oral DHA 
radio labeled, and then looking at the DHA levels in cerebral spinal fluid as sort of a proxy of what gets into the brain. And again, ApoE4 seems to somehow, for some reason, um, you know, modify how much DHA is getting into the brain such that it's not getting in there very well. Right. And this is one of the really cool things that I feel like you observed, which is that, which is, has been a mystery to all of us who've been following this literature is that the supplements have the, all the data on supplements for humans have not been very encouraging for supplementing DHA and helping with Alzheimer's, but fish eaters do seem to have a benefit. And that this has always been super confusing. Right. Um, and particularly for ApoE4 carriers, uh, there, there's, exactly. yeah, there's been, there's been studies showing that actually supplementation can confer some benefits in non ApoE4 carriers, but not in ApoE4 carriers, whereas fish intake has benefits for everyone. So that was, that, that was kind of one of the, um, you know, conundrums, like it really wasn't understood why. Uh, and, and there's, you know, probably lots of things going on, but if you, if you think about, and if you look into the literature about how DHA gets into the brain, there's two main ways it gets into the brain. One is DHA is kind of just in its free fatty acid form and it's bound to albumin in, in the blood and albumin carries it to the brain, blood brain barrier and the DHA, um, fatty acid, because it's, it's lipophilic and it's small, it kind of just passively diffuses through the blood brain barrier. And it does it by going through the tight junctions. These are endothelial cells that are connecting and sort of making up the, the blood brain barrier. They are the, they're the dunk junctions between the endothelial cells. Um, so the, so the DHA is kind of transporting along the outer membrane of the blood brain barrier and going through these tight junctions, then getting in. The other way DHA gets into the brain is um, in another form, which is a, a, a phospholipid form that originates from phosphatidylcholine DHA, and it's called lysophosphatidylcholine DHA. It's a really long word. Um, but essentially, all you need to really <laughs> remember is that it's phospholipid form. It's not, it's just, it's not GHA in a free fatty acid floating form. And in, in this phospholipid form, right. it binds to a transporter that is at the blood-brain barrier. And the transporter itself takes the phospholipid DHA and flips it across the blood-brain barrier, bypassing all the tight junctions and outer membrane and flips it to the inside of the blood-brain barrier, where it's then transported along this inner membrane surface of the blood-brain barrier and gets into the brain. So those are very different processes um, for getting DHA. But at the at the end of the day, the DHA gets into the brain either either way. And so it's basically just like a redundant system. Like there's just two ways for it to occur in a, in a normal person anyway. Yeah, there are two ways for it to occur. And it seems as though in the phospholipid form, um, it gets into the brain quicker. So from from basically oral consumption to, to, to brain uptake. In the free fatty acid form, it can take a little bit longer. But um, in the, if you consume it in phospholipid form already, it can get it's sort of into the brain quicker than being consumed in non-phospholipid form. Does that matter how fast it can? Uh, it can brain? for things like traumatic brain injury. Um, you know, things like okay. I think traumatic yeah. brain injury is the one thing that really comes to mind where, uh, you know, you really want it to be quick. Uh, and, and DHA has been shown to be really important for uh, alleviating some of the negative outcomes for uh, TBI. Okay. So here's where the ApoE comes into play. Uh, ApoE also seems to sort of play a role in, in the blood-brain barrier. And ApoE4 disrupts the, the tight junctions between the blood-brain barrier. Uh, and it does this through this whole process, which I'm not going to really get into detail. 
But the thing that's really telling is that it disrupts the tight junctions and you sort of get this leaky blood-brain barrier that kind of gets progressively worse with age. Hmm. And this has been shown um, in a variety of different animal studies. Uh, It's been shown that the process of passive diffusion using lipophilic molecules, uh, much like DHA, is disrupted. Um, That transport process is disrupted in APOE4 as well. So that kind of led me to this, this whole hypothesis that, well, maybe, you know, ApoE4 carriers need the phospholipid form of DHA to get DHA into their brains better. Um, and going back to the fish intake versus the supplemental, without getting, it's a very complex topic, but without getting into too much of the nuance, um, essentially about 1% of the omega-3 fatty acids uh, or DHA is in phospholipid form in fish. Whereas in fish oil supplements, uh, you don't have any phospholipid form. It's usually uh, either an ethyl ester form or a triglyceride form. And so I was like, well, it's in phospholipid form in fish and it seems like fish, you know, seems to help people with APOE4. So I was looking into how, what the metabolism is of DHA in phospholipid form versus in like a triglyceride or ethyl ester form. That's so interesting. So, um, did you say it's only 1% in fish? It's only 1% in fish. Wow. Now, now, if we go one step further and talk about really good forms, uh, phospholipid forms of DHA, fish roe have between, you know, 38 to 70% of DHA in phospholipid form. Oh, wow. So that's a ton of DHAs in phospholipid form. So I should be eating more caviar. Caviar, yes. Fish eggs. <laughs> fish eggs. That's, that's definitely um, the one of the themes in the paper uh, is that I'm sort of <laughs> – you know, pr- proposing that maybe people should, you know, at least uh, scientists that are studying this, you know, should maybe try a clinical trial with fish roe or the the oil from fish roe, which would be in phospholipid form. So why is it that the supplements are not in the phospholipid form? Uh, well, phospholipid form DHA, you have to get from from either the, the, the roe or getting it from uh, krill oil. Krill oil is another uh, source of DHA in phospholipid form. The problem with krill oil is that it's it's not very concentrated. And also I've found it very difficult to not find a rancid smelling uh, krill oil. Every everyone I've tried, it Ew. smells really bad. So I've kind of just not 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 gone there. Um, I will say this though. DHA, if you consume it in non-phospholipid form, like in a fish oil supplement, you do form the phospholipid DHA version I was talking about. You just don't form as much as you do if you consume it in phospholipid okay. form. And clearly not enough to help people with ApoE4 at the doses. Yeah. Well, at the doses they were giving. Now, the question is, if you go to a much higher dose, then potentially, you know, that may be as good as consuming it in a phospholipid form. But then you might end up with other problems too. <laughs> yeah, there's no telling. But the point is either, you know, trying both high do- really high dose fish oil or trying this phospholipid form, um, either, you know, fish roe or I guess potentially krill oil or the, the oil from 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 the fish. So if they're getting the, I'm just confused still, like if they're getting the supplements and they say it's fish oil, I feel like this is still confusing because if there's 1% in fish, why does not, it? why doesn't it get to the supplement at all? It seems like a- Oh, so typically um, the whole molecular distillation process, um, which is done to, to purify the fish oil away from potential contaminants, PCBs, mercury, mm-hmm. um, things like that. The DHA is removed 
and it's like free it's it's now free dha and it's free form and they put it they run it through this whole column and stuff and at then at the end when they once they purify it most supplement companies kind of just leave it in this form which is actually an ethyl ester so it's actually not even what's found in nature some companies will actually then reesterify it to triglyceride hmm. a glyc- basically a glycerol backbone which is uh, which you can find it in fish like in triglyceride form why they don't esterify it to phospholipid i don't know that's probably a chemistry question yeah well they probably just don't know they're just probably trying to put dha in a pill like they promised <laughs> right. right yeah so i mean I, I i know that there are now um scientists that have made in, they've made uh, the specific form that I'm talking about, lysophosphatylcholine DHA, um, that is available at least for research purposes. So um, I'm assuming eventually it's going to be something that you know consumers can buy as well. But um, it certainly would be nice to see some studies done. Um, that's kind of the hope of this paper, you know, that that it'll instigate people to kind of researchers that are studying this to to maybe use a phospholipid DHA form to see if it helps ApoE4 carriers. Right. So that hasn't actually been directly tested yet. It hasn't been. Right. Exactly. So I sort of get into the mechanism and, and, you know, show all the the data that's already published. And um, if you look at the figures in my paper, it really helps because I I show the blood brain barrier and how ApoE4 disrupts the tight junctions. Um, And that's all been published. uh, Whereas ApoE3 does not and how the different transport, how DHA is transported, you know, through these two different mechanisms. So um, the hope is to sort of get people to study it. And in the meantime, I'm consuming, I actually do eat salmon roe. I choose, I like salmon because it, you know, it's a low mercury fish and um, it also has astaxanthin Mm -hmm. in it, which is the carotenoid responsible for the pink color and it has benefits in of itself, but you don't have to, you can eat, you know, there's flying fish roe, which you can find at like Japanese markets. They're a little bit smaller. So people that don't Mm -hmm. really like, that the texture, you know, they don't like mm-hmm. the liquid spilling out into their mouth as they bite into something. It's kind of a That's fishy. Part. All right. I know. I like it personally, <laughs> but, it. but my husband, Dan, is not a big fan. So, um, uh, there are other types of, of roe that you can eat, you know, that also you know, what's super funny. Kevin didn't like it either. He was like, that's bait. We used to use that for bait when I was a kid. And he would totally gross out at the salmon roe. And I'd always order it at sushi restaurants. But after listening to you, now he's all about it. The salmon roe in particular? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He. I mean, for a while, we were living in New York and we lived by a, a really wonderful uh, deli called Russ and Daughters that just has this beautiful wild salmon roe. And he would just buy it by the pint. Like, <laughs> just, and um, I was like, who are you? Like, how come you don't That's listen awesome. to me? You only listen to Rhonda. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, since you meet, mentioned pregnancy, um, the the other thing that I had come across, and I had been like vlogging this on Instagram for a while throughout my pregnancy, but I was like eating this caviar and salmon roe, but I couldn't tell everyone about the ApoE4 stuff because my paper wasn't published. But I did tell them about, you know, this, the papers that had shown that DHA and phospholipid form gets taken up into the developing brain quicker than, um, than mm. non-phospholipid. Yeah. So um, the, 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 the concern people have about, you know, consuming salmon roe or any other fish roe um while they're pregnant is that you know the the potential for parasites but but the the roe usually is frozen um after it's you know i said it's frozen uh at a temperature that kills off any potential parasites but again of course anyone that's concerned should just not consume raw fish um but i i chose to you know consume a lot of uh salmon roe during my pregnancy yeah yeah i i do too and um I actually just, 
recently interviewed Bill Marler, who is a food safety expert, because I was like, I had so many questions. It's like, all the healthy foods are things I'm not right. supposed to eat when I'm pregnant. Like, I'm not supposed to eat salad anymore. What the heck? <laughs> and, um, and apparently, like, the sourcing is just a really big deal. So if you're getting good sources that you trust, like I really trust Russ and Daughters, they do a good job. Um, then it's, I mean, your risk is never zero, uh, but you know, not eating healthy foods while you're pregnant is also not right. a good option. So, you know, you're sort of weighing all these things, but yeah, it's, it's tricky territory. Yeah. What's exciting then is that not only does it seem like the fish and phospholipid form DHA can not only like slow, but also ameliorate some f of the symptoms of Alzheimer's. Is that right? Well, the DHA has been shown to do that in, um, you know, just by, by fish consumption. Um, it's been shown to ameliorate some of the like neuropathological characteristics uh, in Alzheimer's patients. And also it's been shown to improve some, you know, cognitive function. Now that hasn't been shown yet with the DHA phospholipid form. So I'm hoping right, right. that that's what researchers will do after my paper is now out and sort of laying the groundwork. And uh, it's like, well, here's a mechanism now, you know, <laughs> empirically show whether or not it does or doesn't do anything. Right. So um, from those old other papers, then what, like, what dosages are we talking about here? How often were these people eating fish that had such a benefit? So the, the more frequent the eating it, the, the more the benefit. So um, like eating it three, three or four times a week uh, was better than one time a week, for example. Mm -hmm. And um, with the with the supplement studies, of, of course, that it wasn't the case with ApoE4 carriers, but with non-carriers, they had benefits at two grams of DHA a day. So then the question mm -hmm. becomes, do carriers need four grams a day or and or phospholipid form um, DHA supplemental? So that's, that's sort of the okay. question. Right. And then... And we still don't know if fish roe is And that's be... the thing. I was like, fish roe is so <laughs> high in this DHA phospholipid form and no one has studied it. I mean, that hasn't, it hasn't, I haven't seen any epidemiological studies looking at fish roe intake and any sort of diseases. It's always fish, not fish roe. Right. You know, and I, I haven't seen, I certainly haven't seen any clinical studies using it. So, so that's kind of like, I'm, I talk a lot about fish roe in this paper and in hopes that, you know, people will start to study it. <laughs> yeah. Right. There are populations that eat a lot of fish roe, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So speaking of epidemiological studies, I was wondering, like something I struggle with a lot, you know, I, I read, you know, I read your paper and I've been following this, this literature for a while and it's, it's pretty convincing. I mean, it, it's pretty convincing that fish is really beneficial for aging brain health. And I'm curious for you, like, what do you tell vegetarians who ask you about this stuff? Because I, I really struggle. I mean, on the one hand, I know that for a lot of markers, vegetarian diet is super healthy. You know, like they'll live longer, they have lower risk of cardiovascular disease and a lot of other things. Rarely are people talking about brain health, aging brain. For one thing, I tried to find some papers specifically looking at a vegetarian diet with dementia or aging brain, I couldn't really find very much, which I was surprised by. Um, maybe you've seen more than I have. But, um, you know, when somebody asked me directly for advice on that, you know, I, I'm always saying, well, food is better than supplements if you can get away with it. Um, and I don't, <laughs> and I know that the omega-3 um, ALA, which is the vegetarian form of omega-3 
does convert to DHA at a, at a very low level in the body, but it's really not enough to help with something like this. So if you're a normal person concerned with brain aging, or even worse, if you're an APOE4 carrier with one or two alleles of that, like, and you want to be a vegetarian, it seems like a really, you're in a really hard position. Yeah. So you bring up a really good point. I have had people asking me that previously. And I, you know, typically what I tell them, as you mentioned, alpha-linolenic acid, ALA, which is found in plants like, you know, flax seeds, walnuts, uh, is a source of omega-3, which does get converted into EPA and DHA, the two other uh, omega-3s that are predominantly found in marine organisms. It doesn't do it very well. As you mentioned, uh, things like estrogen can modify that and improve it a little bit. There are also a variety of, of these SNPs that I mentioned earlier that seem to also play a role in how well that's done. Some people do it better than others. And that's something that a variety of, you know, genetic testing services, you know, do test for like 23andMe. And so people can, can find that if they want. But the other thing is that algae, microalgae uh, is probably a, one that I would say that if they're looking for a supplemental source, microalgae is at least, you know, got more DHA. So you're getting, you know, you're bypassing that whole, well, if the ALA doesn't convert well into DHA, well, at least I'm getting the DHA. Hmm. Now, the phospholipid is another question. And in fact, Someone um, did send me some information about a certain algae supplement that is being that has a phospho some phospholipid uh, DHA in it. I can't. I'm trying to find. I, I can't find it right now, but I can send it to you if you want to. Like, yeah, I'd love know, to. If you want more, yeah, information I'd love to, on I'd that. Look to that. Yeah. So, there, but there's just one that I found, hmm. which could potentially be. You know, um, you know. Honestly, I think it, it is best if you could just you know eat some fish roe or or fish, but you know, some people I guess just won't do that. So maybe this algae supplement um, that does have at least a small percentage of DHA and phospholipid form. The problem with the algae, the microalgae supplements also is that their dose is very, you know, it's a small dose. So you may have to like, you know, take a lot more. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned 23andMe. So you and I both have done these tests. Uh, I don't know the breadth these days. I, I took my test like a zillion years ago. I mean, I assume a lot of people probably don't know whether or not you're an ApoE4 carrier. I mean, if you have Alzheimer's disease in your family, like more than one person, almost certainly there's, there's probably a genetic link, but um, how can people find out if, if they are a carrier? Well, there are, like I said, there's a lot of variety of uh, these um, genetic testing, com- consumer available genetic testing services, 23andMe, Ancestry, DNA, and there's others as well that do test for, for the ApoE uh, SNP. Now, these testing services are not foolproof. I mean, like they, they there's errors in 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 the methods that they use to to sequence the, the variety of these genes that they're looking at. So that's something to keep in mind. You know that you may you may be told that you're ApoE4, but actually the testing wasn't actually accurate, and you're not, or vice versa. So. Um, that's always something to keep in mind. And, and in particular, APOE is a very difficult one to test for because of, because it's a, you have to have multiple, multiple different mutations in the same gene that are made. And so it has to be the combination of those things. And it's like really the, the, the method for testing it is really difficult. And it's, um, it's, it's probably one of the genes I would say is most likely, uh, to not be accurate. If you were to, you know, get a list of a list of all the genes, that would be on the top because it's it is difficult to test for. Uh-huh. Sounds like you'd get false negatives more likely than in that if it if you need to confirm different points rather than just a single point. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But you know the there are also a variety of different 
you know, third company, you know, parties that can take that data and sort of help you determine whether or not you do have APOE4. Um, Prometheus is one. They're, you know, they basically just take all the literature that's out there on PubMed and uh, use like the abstracts essentially and, and, and help people de- determine whether or not they, you know, they're, a- they're APOE4 or they have this ALA SNP I was talking about. I have a, a service that does it as well. Um, you can get some free reports on my service. And also there's a comprehensive report uh, that's a $10, $10 uh, sort of, it's a, it's a, you know, pay what you want, but a $10 minimum. That's so nice of you. <laughs> yeah. And we're, and we're actually just getting ready to get, we just got a bunch of new uh, SNPs that um, I'm working with a former NIH geneticist who is really amazing. Like she is so detail oriented and so critical. Like I, I couldn't have asked for a better scientist to be working with because I, I was so paranoid about it's, it's really a, it's difficult. The literature is difficult. Um, mm-hmm. Genetics is difficult. The the orientations of the genes. There's so many different things that are um, even even published. Like the orientations, different scientists publish things differently. So one mutation could mean sure. it's like the exact opposite based on what strand of DNA it is. Anyways, so um, we have a bunch of new ones we're we're getting ready to to update um, this this coming week. So I'm excited about that as well. That's really cool. Yeah. I, I- I definitely have seen yours and it's, it's really, I mean, I, can, I still can't believe you do it for so cheap. <laughs> like you should charge more. Did you but read the April before? Really awesome Did you read the, the information that was there in that report? Cause there's all, I'm going to add this row stuff. I was waiting for it to be published, but it's been a while. Yeah. But yes. Yeah. With my service, we kind of just put all the information. It's like a review article for each SNP. You know, we're not telling people what to do or what it means. We're just kind of saying like, this is the information that's mm-hmm. published on the version that you have. And sort of, you can, decide what to do with that information. But I think it's important to know these things because uh, again, just because you have an APOE4 allele doesn't mean you're going to get Alzheimer's. And there's lots of things you can learn that are um, really modifiable risk factors like the sleep and exercise is another one right. and fish intake or fish row intake. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, so besides eating more caviar, which um, if you don't like caviar, by the way, you can learn. My husband learned. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But uh, besides that, uh, yeah, you mentioned sleep, you mentioned exercise. It's it's, um, cardiovascular exercise, if I recall, right? Yeah, cardiovascular aerobic exercise seems to be really um, an important one for Alzheimer's prevention, uh, in particular APOE4 as well. And one of the interesting things, you know, there's lots of things that, you know, exercise is doing. It's been shown to, of course, increase the growth of new neurons, um, particularly in the hippocampus region, which is where a lot of neuronal loss occurs in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, it's, it's also been shown to activate the glymphatic system, which is super interesting <laughs> mm. because I, as far as I knew, sleep was the only thing to do that. So there's kind of another crossover link between sleep and, and exercise as well. Um, and then there's also been studies showing that, that exercise can improve deep sleep, which is the, the stage important for glymphatic activation. It's also the stage of sleep that as we age gets, you know, people, you know, basically it gets poorer and poorer, uh, deep sleep, you know, gets less and less. Um, hmm. I didn't know that. So, so yeah, it's unfortunate because it's the one that's really important for, uh, glymphatic ac- activation. Do you track your sleep? I do use the aura ring. Um, I'm not like, so I think it's really good for like tracking my duration of sleep, you know, how long I sleep. But uh, in terms of like the stages, you know, of sleep, I, you know, it's not like on my brain measuring brain waves that I'm emitting to like measure the slow wave. And, you know, it's, right. it's tracking my movement and my heart rate. And, you know, there's only so it's only so accurate for, you know, determining the the cycles of sleep. And, you know, I've talked to uh, sleep experts like Matt Walker and he, 
you know, basically is, you know, said, you know, that it's like, you got a 60% chance, maybe it's accurate for like detecting whether or not you're in deep sleep. Mm. So, and, and I've noticed, I've noticed a lot of uh, inconsistencies in that regard, but I do really like it for uh, tracking my duration, my, my total sleep duration. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty useful. I stopped using it when I had a baby because it was just too depressing. <laughs> Before the sleep duration. Oh yeah. yeah. I definitely waited until, <laughs> until like Luke's, Luke was sleeping through the night because yeah, it was, I, there was this first six months. I mean, I was really crazy waking up like and nursing him just like every couple of hours. Right. Uh, it was, it was really hard time for me, but we yeah. got past it. So. <laughs> it ends. And of course, all I could think about was amyloid plaques were building in my brain because I was ApoE4, you know, and I was just like, oh. <laughs> I'll keep you up at night. <laughs> <laughs> it's a vicious cycle. Yeah, feeds into it. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I, I had, yeah, I had the O-ring and it's funny because Kevin and I, we both were wearing it and we have such different sleep patterns. Like he gets all this REM sleep and literally like two minutes of deep sleep. And he's, you know, he's always feels tired and I, I'm like, I sleep far less than him and I, I generally feel rested, but according to the aura ring, I got tons of deep sleep and my REM sleep was usually what would get messed up. So, I mean, but I didn't know what to make of any of that. And I don't exactly know how accurate it is. That's so funny. You know, Dan and I are the exact same as you. So Dan gets so much REM, like his REM sleep is off the chart weird. Like, like he is getting more than he should of REM sleep and not enough deep sleep. And he <laughs> requires a longer sleep duration than I do to feel rested. Um, a very similar mm. kind of case where it's like, you know, I, it seems as though I was getting more deep sleep as well, according to the aura ring and um, he's getting more REM. And he's actually, what's funny is uh, there's a lot of studies looking at, you know, what REM sleep is important for. And it's really like linked to creativity. And he's definitely the more creative mm. one out of, out of the two of us. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm like logical and he just has right. like all these crazy ideas. <laughs> <I know. laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So I have a million more questions for you about food and what you eat and all sorts of stuff, but um, we're coming up in an hour. So I wanted to check in with you and see how, um, you know, we've kind of wrapped up the paper part. So yeah, we can, I've, I, we can talk a little bit about that. I, I certainly seem to eat a lot healthier when, uh, before I was a mom. I mean, I still eat healthy, but I just time wise, I'm like, Okay, now I'm going for the frozen collard greens. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I follow you on Instagram, and um, when I I see your plates and they look super healthy, and then you have this big long explanation of like all the different nutrients that you're getting and why you care, and um, it just seems like you really put a lot of of thought and effort into what goes on your plate. Um, so I was I just wanted to know from you know, you give all these amazing studies and you talk about all these important things, but I'm curious in terms of like overall big picture, I have to eat every day. I have so much time in the day. Like what's your strategy for eating? So my strategy really, um, kind of stems from the, my postdoctoral research I did with Dr. Bruce Ames, who's uh, really an expert on micronutrients. You know, these are vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids, and amino acids that we have to get from our diet that are not only important for short-term survival, but also for aging a lot of people are focused on, I mean, it's just macronutrients, you know, low carb or high carb, low fat, or, you know, like it, it's all macronutrients, protein, carbohydrate, fat. Um, I tend to focus on micronutrients. <laughs> so irrelevant. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because like study after study just shows that's so irrelevant. And so, yeah, yes, what's funny yes. is that, <laughs> that I kind of um, yeah. focusing on the micronutrients. So I'm trying to get a lot of folate, a lot of vitamin K1, K2, uh, magnesium, 
you know, calcium, uh, the carotenoids, you know, I'm, I'm focusing on all these important vitamins and minerals. Uh, what, what that ends up sort of looking like is a lot of leafy greens because leafy greens are really high in folate. Um, they're really high in magnesium and calcium, vitamin K1. They're high in lutein and zeaxanthin. These are carotenoids that are really important for preventing degeneration of your, uh, your, your retina. But also they're, they seem to be really important for brain health as well. And, and, and that's all just, you know, found in the greens. And then, of course, the greens also have like, you know, the vitamin C is found in them as well. Um, and then I, I, so that seems to be the easiest sort of thing. I actually, if I don't have greens with a meal, including breakfast, I literally like, it's totally mental, but I feel like deprived. Like I'm like aging my cells. It's just, it's funny. I can't explain it to you. <laughs> oh, you, I understand. It, yes. <laughs> so some, sometimes I'm like, is, you know, is it a little pathological? I don't know, maybe, but, um, <laughs> but I feel so much better when I have like, I have my sauteed kale with my eggs for breakfast versus just the eggs or, you know, so, um, so I always try to have some, like a little, like even just a small portion of some leafy mm-hmm. greens, dark leafy greens. That's, that's kind of my favorite. And then along with my greens, I am, I also like to have some healthy fats like avocado or nuts. And I, so, I, so I'll, you know, mix those in either with breakfast or a snack. Uh, and I also like eggs. Eggs are really high in choline. Choline's a really important nutrient as well. And also it has protein. And then, and then for my protein, I, I do like uh, a lot of the omega-3 fatty acid um, types of protein, which happen to be, you know, for example, wild Alaskan salmon, which is low in the mercury. So I end up eating a lot of salmon. Mm-hmm. Um, year I round? Also, I do. I do. Um, but I would say in the winter, I make a lot more stews and stuff. And mm-hmm. so I end up eating, eating um, uh, more poultry and uh, red, like, grass-fed beef and stuff. Yeah. Cause I found I've gotten so snobby about my salmon, especially now that I'm living in the Pacific Northwest that I can taste it when it's out of season. It tastes dirty to me and I just can't eat it anymore. I mean, if I get some good smoked salmon, that's been, you know, obviously it was peak of season when it was made, uh-huh. but like, you know, like at a restaurant right now, I won't, I won't order salmon. It just at restaurants, <laughs> I'm a little more picky. At, at restaurants, I'm a little more picky. I've been ordering my salmon um, from this company called a vital choice. So like, you know, I'll get it yeah, and yeah. It, it has the skin off it and everything. And it, it's, it's actually pretty good. Um, it's it frozen. frozen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's frozen. Okay. So that solves the seasonal, right. seasonal problem. Yeah. So that's kind of like a gist of what I eat I vegetables. And then I eat my, like my meat with my vegetables. So it's kind of the opposite of what most people do, like their meat. And then like, yeah. if they may or may not have a vegetable. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you, you named like whatever, a handful of specific nutrients that you care about. Why those and not the other 1,500? <laughs> yeah, there's about 30 or 40. Um, there's about 30 or 40 essential, um, you know, these essential vitamins and minerals and, and fatty acids and amino acids. I think that uh, some of the ones that are, people seem to be most de- um, deficient in are ones that you find in leafy greens. Um, but I, you know, personally, I, you know, folate's really, really important. Like every time you, you make a new cell in your body, it requires folate. Folate make is needed for a precursor to make a DNA nucleotide, um, called thymine. And so if you don't have enough folate, like you end up putting another nucleotide in there, actually it's from RNA called uracil and it ends up having like a break in your DNA strands. You end up damaging your DNA and you're making new cells. Hmm you know, of course, rapidly dividing cells, like your immune cells, your skin cells, your gut cells that you're making that like right now, we're just like churning out new ones all the time. Um, but you also make new cells, 
in your muscle when you have injury or when you're repairing, you know, you, you know, you need to repair a, a damaged cell. Um, so folate is really important for that. It's also really important for providing precursors to uh, what's called epigenetics, which are basically, it basically is just referring to being able to turn on or turn off genes, you know, at different times. So you need uh, certain molecules to do that. And one of them happens to be a methyl group, which is essentially a carbon with three hydrogens and folate provides something that's necessary to make that. So I like folate. Um, folate's really concentrated. It was originally actually isolated from like three tons of spinach from my postdoctoral mentor's graduate student advisor. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, I, I, you know, I, I was mentioning the things that are really high in, in leafy greens. Vitamin K one is another one mm-hmm. that the, you know, the, the certain percentage of the population doesn't get enough of, and it's really important for blood clotting. Mm-hmm. But when you get enough K one, it actually serves the function of what vitamin K two does. And vitamin K two um, is they're essentially vitamin K one and K two um, play important roles uh, in in either, you know, blood clotting or in calcium homeostasis. Um, basically, the, removing calcium from the bloodstream and bringing it to your muscles or to your bones where it's needed, preventing the calcium from like forming a precipitate in your blood vessels, which you don't want. You don't want cas- calcium plaques in your arteries and stuff. So, right. um, but vitamin K1 really, it's like goes to the liver and it's involved in blood clotting. But when you get enough of it in the liver, it stays in the bloodstream and does what vitamin K2 does, which is remove calcium and bring it to the bones and to the muscle. So that's nice. Yeah. So it's kind of like <laughs> people don't do, that don't get enough K1 um, essentially definitely need to get some K2 because the K2 um, can, can serve another function. But it's really interesting that when you get enough K1, which you abs- which I'm getting like I'm getting like enormous amounts of K1. Um, so, you know, it's also serving the other function, but I also get K2 as well. Yeah. Um, So it sounds like you're very focused on molecules related to aging and nutrients related to aging. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, That probably would have been a shorter answer. Um, (laughs) I like it. I do. I do. Yeah. I like my approach. It's, I feel like I'm a little skeptical of the functional foods notion. Um, just because I, my general assumption is that we don't know very much about science and nutrients and that, I mean, the stuff we know is like really cool and really convincing, but I also feel like there's probably hundreds of, of really powerful nutrients doing amazing things that we haven't discovered yet. And so my, my general approach is get as many different like natural foods in my body as possible. And actually even seasonally, um, because I feel like, we've evolved with seasons and we probably bank stuff for in certain times of year. And, you know, when it's citrus season, I eat citrus. And when it's berry season, I eat berries. And I don't, I don't usually, you know, I'm not eating a lot of berries in January. It's like, you know, I know that you can, you can like have have frozen ones and stick them in your smoothies or whatever. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's a really good and uh, approach and it certainly makes a lot of sense. Uh, You know, it, also, you know, fruit seasons like the summer and, and maybe we shouldn't be, maybe you should gorge more on fruit in the summer and not all year round, you know? And so I, I, I certainly right. think that makes, makes a lot of senses from, from multiple perspectives. I'd like to try to do more of that, except for the fact that I um, am limited on time. And so I end up going to frozen fruits and stuff sometimes and, and yeah. even frozen spinach, you know? So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Mom life. Um, well, actually, that was one other thing I wanted to ask you is when you were pregnant, you know, you mentioned the the salmon roe. Uh, was there anything specific that you either were trying to get or avoiding while pregnant? Because I, mean, I find that it's been, you know, I'm in my second pregnancy now and it's 
it's so it's like it can be almost paralyzing how scary you know you really want to get all these nutrients in they're super important in utero the more i read like the exposures though like chemical exposures in utero are just people i don't think people pay enough attention to it um so i've been really highly concerned about plastics uh heavy metals um obviously BPA and, and other things like that. And I'm curious uh, how you approached it because you're actually even deeper in this world than I am. So. Well, I was uh, very, very similar to you, um, you know, trying, trying to get nutrient density, um, making sure I was getting, again, all those leafy greens. I also wanted to get, you know, the carotenoids like carrots and tomatoes. And, and then I was getting avocados for the, you know, monounsaturated fat and the, and the vitamin E, um, I was eating salmon and uh, I was wild salmon, wild Alaskan salmon. And there were studies that have been published. I think 2015 was, um, one of the main ones that showed that, you know, eating, eating a lot of, um, fish that's low mercury, like salmon totally protected from, you know, the omega threes, fatty acids in the salmon protected from any mercury, potential mercury toxicity. Oh yeah. So that was cool. against what, you know, uh, pediatricians were like recommending against eating fish, but it turns right, out, right. you know, that, um, you know, fish, not eating fish may be actually worse than, than eating fish that's low in mercury. S- super interesting. So I knew that it was, it, the benefits outweighed it. I didn't realize it actually blocked some of the mercury toxicity. Crazy. Yeah. And it specifically was pr- protecting in developing, you know, fetal brains, which are more sensitive to, you know, the potential toxic effects of mercury. Hmm. And I was trying to avoid things, you know, so, I was, and I was also eating fruits and, and I was eating whole grains. I was eating, and I was eating oats and things, mm-hmm. you know, I was basically, I don't always eat, you know, a lot of whole grains, but when I was pregnant, I basically, I, I wasn't doing this like low carb and all this. I certainly don't eat anything refi- like refined sugar or any of the processed stuff, but, but I was eating oatmeal. Um, as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, I need that. If I don't have that, I'm starving. Oatmeal with some like nuts yeah. and sometimes some berries or something. Yeah, that's, that was... And then I was really trying to avoid uh, rice because of the arsenic that's found in rice. Mm-hmm. That was one Apparently thing. Apparently shrimp are really high in arsenic too. Oh, I really? I that. didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> it was like one of my favorite salads to order had like these beautiful shrimp on it and I loved it. And I was like, dang it. Yeah. Arsenic <laughs> is definitely I just one. found this out a couple weeks ago. And then chocolate is another high, the, the cadmium and arsenic that can be found in chocolate. So I kind of was just really, you know, I basically stopped eating dark chocolate. I just- I was concerned about, you know, well, I don't know, what if there's some? So, and then of course the plastics, I was really hyper aware. I like, did not drink out of plastic bottles. Yeah. Or cans. I even avoided the oh, cans because yeah. they'll have right lighting. cans. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, anything, just anything with plastic, I was just, because even the BPA free stuff, the BPS is now showing to have like similar effects. So yeah. Bad. And then the phthalates. And yeah. you're, as you mentioned, there's studies that are just very, re- like this last month, even, I think multiple studies have come out showing pesticides phthalates um mm-hmm. these things are now being linked to developmental delays so so women that consume them during pregnancy mm-hmm. like there's one i just um shared today you know phthalates these are found in like nail polish hairspray plastic packaging like in foods mm-hmm. vinyl flooring uh, is another one so um crazy two specific ones are like were were measured at like the 10th week of pregnancy in women they were found much higher in women um, that had children that were like three years old with developmental delays. And so other Crazy. studies have shown these things affect testosterone levels in right, pregnant women. Systems. Right. Yeah. So very, I think that's one thing. And even I'm super aware with like my son, uh, because males really, 
are right. really susceptible to uh, those types of That's hormonal different. changes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm definitely aware of all that stuff as much as I can. Yeah. I wanted to ask you as well. Um, I recently re-listened to your episode on sulforaphane. Um, so people who don't know there's a, a substance in broccoli and cruciferous vegetables and, and in specifically in broccoli sprouts that helps you sort of secrete and detoxify uh, a lot of harmful things that are in your body, which is super cool. But when, when I'm being pregnant, I'm like, is that do I want to be releasing all these toxins from my body and putting them into my baby? You know, and I also, I'm even concerned with nursing, you know, because I know that it often comes out in sweat and in urine. Does it come out in breast milk? And I don't know the answer to the, maybe have, you have some data, but um, I'm like, I like get scared. I'm like, should I not eat cruciferous vegetables? <laughs> I actually had an aversion to broccoli in my first pregnancy. I don't have it now, but um, I couldn't touch the stuff. I, I got sick once and then I just, oh, it was really tough. I've, I've lo- and I love it now. I love it. You know, I've loved it later. It's just really strange thing. So yeah, I was curious what your thoughts are on all that. Well, I haven't seen any data um, suggesting that any, any of the xenobiotic detoxification stuff comes out in breast milk. And certainly um, the fetus is, is highly protected from some of these things as you unconjugate them, which is what, you know, these phase two detoxification enzymes are doing. It does, you know, it's basically inactivating them before they would even get into the fetus. And so it's excreted through urine and it's completely inactive. Um, So what it's doing is inactivating it and then, you know, excreting it through these variety of different, um, you know, sweat, urine. So it seems as though certain heavy metals, certain um, compounds are excreted, excreted more through either urine or sweat, depending on what compound we're talking about, which is kind of interesting. Like arsenic and cadmium are like 15 fold Hmm. higher excreted in in sweat than urine, whereas like mercury hmm. is mostly excreted through urine. Uh, so yeah, so it's, I, I, for, for me, getting the cruciferous vegetables mm-hmm. was actually still really important uh, during pregnancy and certainly yeah, yeah. not. I mean, I assume sure. that that, but um, it's still better. <laughs> probably the case. Um, but yeah, I was just, <laughs> right. I, I don't know. I get, but it's like, yeah, it's good. Thoughts it's a good up. thing to think about. Yeah, for sure. I, I did avoid eating broccoli sprouts during pregnancy just because of the potential for bacterial, like E. coli contamination. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't, I have had a, a bad batch of broccoli sprouts before where it's like, Ooh. you know, made me a little nauseous and stuff. Even ones you sprouted yourself? Yeah. At home? One, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, it, certainly it happened to me from store-bought, but it has happened to me before with ones I've sprouted myself. So hmm. um, I think I figured out why that was, but but still, I avoided them throughout pregnancy because just I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to like, you know, get sick. Yeah. So I was just, I was eating raw kale instead. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I could talk to you forever, but I will, <laughs> I know you have a baby and I have a baby, <laughs> so we will get back to our babies. But um, why don't you let people know where we can find you online? Because I mean, for those of you who don't know, Rhonda has an amazing podcast, Found My Fitness, super, super geeky pretty much the geekiest podcast I've ever heard. So if you want to feel really smart, (laughs) definitely subscribe to that. And she'll tell you everything you've ever wanted to know about aging. Um, And where else, where else can we find you? Uh, I have a website, foundmyfitness.com. You can find, you know, all the episodes of my podcast there. We do videos also with, you know, lots of definitions to help educate people and references and things like that. Uh, I'm, I'm found my fitness on all social media. So Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, basically anywhere, you know, you want to yeah. find me. I like your Instagram because I feel like I learn what you are doing. Right. It's a lot more personal. <laughs> yeah. Although sometimes it's hard for me to post because it is more personal. And so I'm, you know, more selective, Yeah, <laughs> but of course, um, of course. it's really been fun chatting with you. I always have fun chatting with you, Daria. 
Thanks for listening to the Foodist Podcast. I'm Daria Rose. And if you're interested in upgrading your own health style, learning how to get healthy and lose weight without dieting and without all of the suffering that it brings, then head over to my website, Summer Tomato, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. When you sign up, you'll get a free starter kit that'll teach you the basics of how to start changing the way you think about food, health, and weight loss. You'll also get a free chapter from my book, Foodist, called The Myth of Willpower that explains the science behind why the no pain, no gain mantra of the weight loss industry is the absolute worst approach to getting healthy. So come over to Summer Tomato and sign up. We have a fantastic community and we would love, love, love to have you. Thanks for listening and I will see you next time.